Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today is South Africa's High Commissioner to Canada, Ms. Sibongiseni Glamini Ntambo. She has been High Commissioner to Canada since 2017. She has also served as the President of the Ottawa Diplomatic Association. And from 2017 to 2020, she was Chairperson of the Women Heads of Diplomatic Missions in Canada. She has chaired SADC Group in Canada from 2017 to 2019. Welcome to the show, High Commissioner. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me to the show. And I would also like to greet your listeners. I'd like to begin by, by saying you've served South Africa in both the private as well as the public sector. You've occupied executive positions in the Department of Economic Affairs and Tourism, the Department of Minerals and Energy, as well as the Department of Higher Education and Training. Please, can you share with us a few of the landmarks in your career and what attracted you to, to pursue a diplomatic career? Perhaps I should start by indicating that I'm a qualified teacher by profession. I hold a BA degree in communication science and an honors degree also in communication science. I also hold a master's degree in business leadership. So after a short stint in education, I pursued a career in the fields of communications, marketing, advertising, and stakeholder management, working in the FMCG and in the mining and metals industry. I was the public affairs and communication advisor for the Chamber of Mines of South Africa, and I also chaired the mining industry Public Affairs Committee while at the Chamber of Mines. I've also worked for the IEC, that's the Independent Electoral Commission of South Africa, coordinating, managing communication and marketing campaigns for South Africa's 2004 national and 2006 provincial and local government elections. Now, this included engaging with stakeholders, South Africans, political parties, the media, etc. So besides the qualifications, I believe the experience I've accumulated working with the diverse stakeholders, both in the private and public sectors, positioning, persuading, marketing, and convincing the stakeholders to buy into ideas, into services or product, is what has prepared me for the position I am in today. This is because the range of functions that diplomats engage in requires someone who can negotiate. They require a good communicator, a strategic thinker, somebody who is brilliant in public relations or stakeholder management, and someone who constantly reads. You certainly have developed the skill set, obviously from a communication point of view and stakeholder management aspects. Being High Commissioner in Canada, what would you say is your greatest challenge in the role? The greatest challenge in this role is to ensure that one constantly engages and builds strong relations with different stakeholders in the host country, both in the public and private sector. 
This also includes keeping in close contact with the diaspora, and it does make it easy to engage on matters of concern about one's country when they arise. As an example, during my first two years in Canada, I had to manage perceptions in relations to corruption because of what was then termed the Gupta leaks. Potential investors wanted assurances. Some institutions of higher learning invited me to give addresses on what South Africa was doing to address corruption. And just when I thought I was managing that area very well, then there were concerns about violence targeting foreign nationals. So the challenges, they change. And one has to be on top of issues because you wake up and it's totally something different from yesterday. Recently, the challenges have been brought about by the COVID-19 and the ripple effects of this pandemic. South African missions had to locate or identify South Africans in our host countries. We had to check their status in the host country. We had to check their documentation. We had to put in place systems to repatriate those who needed to be repatriated. This was not easy. Yes, those challenges, one experiences them on a day-to-day basis in South Africa, but realizing how those manifest into a completely different context in different countries is another dynamic to manage altogether, particularly when it affects aspects of a foreign investment, um, looking at how one does business within the country. Those are all exceptionally important. So we spoke about some of the challenging aspects what would you say are some of the, let's look at it as, as opportunities, as milestones that you want to accomplish during your period in Canada? Let me just indicate that I have actually come to an end of my tour of Tuesday in Canada. So the response to this would be, what did I accomplish during my term? It would be unfair of me to claim accomplishments without mentioning the impressive role my staff at the High Commission uh, in Ottawa uh, have played. I was fortunate to have very hard-working staff members who are passionate about their work and their country. To this day, our machine continues to get positive reviews, and I can say we are amongst the best performing machines in this host country given the recognition we have received and also in terms of the awards. Some of the accomplishments, if I can just mention a few, we've had collaboration between the Canadian Border Management Service and South Africa's Border Management Agency. A cooperation plan has been concluded and signed by both parties. We continue seeking possible collaborations with tertiary institutions in 2018, the Smith Business School at Queen's University added its first partner school in Africa, and that is the University of Stellenbosch Business School. The agreement between these two schools allows um, students in Queen's University in the Commerce and Masters of International Business programs to go on exchange in Stellenbosch and vice versa. There is an ongoing program between the University of Limpompo and Laurentian University, which is sponsored by Ivanhoe Mines. Ivanhoe Mines is a Canadian mining company that is mining in South Africa to develop and to equip the University of Limpompo's geology department. 
Also, there have been accomplishments when it comes to trade. One of the main accomplishments was when the province, for instance, the provinces of uh, British Columbia, Alberta, and a few other provinces, finally lifted a ban on wines not originally from Canada. For years, these provincial governments believed that they had the constitutional authority to impose trade bans on some products based on their origin. And this included wines from South Africa. So together with other wine producing countries like Australia, the US, France, we fought this. And in 2018, the ban was lifted. Then there are issues of perceptions. We have been successful in convincing a number of potential investors that we are fighting corruption and we are determined to succeed. I have chaired SADC, and during that time, the High Commission organized economic tours and seminars promoting SADC as an investment de destination. We have been informed that during my presidency of the Women Heads of Diplomatic Missions, the profile of this group improved. I write, if I can put it that way, extensively on different topics for publications here in Canada. We partner with business associations and universities to host seminars on different matters of interest. So those are just some of the accomplishments. Thanks for highlighting some of those achievements, and they certainly have significant impact, both from an academic point of view in education, as well as from a business perspective with regards to, as you mentioned, the example of being able to import wines, which is a very strong export market from a South African perspective into Canada. We have noted that there definitely seems to be increasing feminization of government services around the world and a strong emergence of female diplomats, not just from a South African and African perspective, but also other countries globally. In your line of work, you travel extensively to different countries. Based on your observations, which ones would you say have been more effective in terms of addressing gender inequalities? And what type of lessons can we draw from them to ensure that more countries get on the right path with regards to gender equality? I just want to first refer to the field that I'm in. Diplomacy and international politics have been fields associated with and they have been reserved for men. Today, the diversity and complexity of issues and areas of global interest go beyond gender. International relations and diplomacy are no longer mainly about averting wars and conquering nations, but they have shifted to cover issues of common global interest, mainly related to human rights, to health, climate change, environment, peace and security, education, sustainable development, um, science and technology. Now, given this paradigm shift, women can no longer be excluded from taking part in driving the global agenda. The areas of common interest can be managed equally by both men and women, depending on their areas of expertise and capacity. Now, the area of traveling, I don't think I have traveled that much to give a laudable opinion in this area. However, the information I have 
is from different studies. It is true that globally, the recorded number of countries that have made significant progress in advancing women's participation in politics is extremely low. In many countries, women are still totally excluded from uh, formal politics, and they are unable to exercise any political leverage. Now, by in politics, I mean women in parliament, women in government institutions, women in diplomacy, and other senior leadership positions. For instance, look at the world leaders today. While there is still a small but notable increase in the number of countries that have elected a female leader, this number is still a far cry from what should be acceptable. Given the United Nations 1946 Universal Declaration on Human Rights, which states that everyone has a right to take part in the government of his country directly or through freely chosen representatives, we should be seeing more of an increase of women in government. Countries keep on passing laws that are supportive of women's participation in leadership. But the reality of the matter is that is not happening. It's not happening as quickly as we would love to see it. The irony in all of this is that countries perceived to be politically powerful are actually not leading global trends when it comes to female presence in leadership and politics. Some African countries, you would be surprised, are actually leading in this area. Countries like my country, South Africa, countries like Rwanda, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Mozambique are far ahead compared to countries like the USA, like Canada, my host country, and the United Kingdom just to mention a few. You're so right. And it's something that I've seen time and time again in conversations with leading women such as yourselves. And one of the things that I've thought about on this dynamic is potentially that from an African point of view, we have got younger democracies, whereas if you compare the likes of Canada, the UK, the USA, their constitutions are in excess of 200 years old. And I often wonder if perhaps it's the way that those constitutions were developed in an era which is not of our time today, that is, is maybe a little irrelevant. And in thinking of the ways that South Africa, as, as an example, sought its freedom, sought to become a, a democracy, women and men were standing shoulder to shoulder, there was no way that a woman who'd been fighting for the rights of her country and her people was going to say, okay, uh, Joe, you can take the road now and I'll, I'll take a back seat. That is right. Um, especially if you remember one of the pivotal moments with regards to women in South Africa in their struggle, the uh, March of 1956, where women marched, about 20,000 of women, regardless of the color, um, the race, they just went to the union buildings because they were, they were not in favor of the passport and they were demanding women's rights. So as long as women fight, and the women of South Africa are very known to be vocal, are known to be fighting for women's rights, as long as we keep on fighting and working together towards a common goal, we are going to win. I truly agree with you there. 
Staying with your, let's say, your, your term of, of office from a, a point of view in Canada, you mentioned that during the time that you were chairing SADC, that you were also chairperson of the Women Heads of Diplomatic Missions in Canada, and that had given it much more visibility. Please tell us more about the setup. What is the Women Heads of Diplomatic Missions? Yes. The Women Heads of Diplomatic Missions in Canada is a group of women heads of missions uh, accredited to Canada. From 2017 to 2020, I was the president of the Women Heads of Diplomatic uh, Missions in Canada, a portfolio of which I believe I managed very well as South Africa, but at the same time, it's because the Africa region that was in the presidency and I was nominated as South Africa to be the president. During my term, an analysis of the gender representation of ambassadors or high, commis- high commissioners accredited to Canada, I think that was in June 2019, if I'm not mistaken, it revealed that only 32 women out of 184 countries had diplomatic relations with Canada. And that is just 17%, 17%. Although we did not confirm this, we think Canada is one of the countries with the highest percentage of accredited female ambassadors and high commissioners. And that, again, if I may emphasize, that is at 17%. I must say it was during my presidency that the Women Heads of Diplomatic Missions was recognized by the government of Canada and the Governor General. I think we're doing something right because suddenly a number of stakeholders wanted to partner with us on a number of projects and programs. This included universities, included schools, included senators, parliamentarians, business, you name it. I did learn a lot in that role and I think I did Africa proud. It must be so rewarding when you see the fruits of your labor coming about into production Staying with this view and a notion of of women in leadership, our program, Womanity, Women in Unity, is all about gender equality. And it is certainly, thankfully, becoming more and more of a global focus. We really believe that building female leadership capacity is important for the future of women, not just within South Africa, but in the African continent and indeed around the world. You've held several roles, both in the private and public sector. You've, you've specialized in various areas. Given these types of experiences, how do you see female leadership, whether it's in the private sector, public sector, academia, or any other field for that matter? Today, the world is in desperate need of great leaders. Whether in business or politics, we need great leaders. Yet many leadership opportunities have been and are still being withheld from half of the workforce. They are still being withheld from women. Even with all the progress we have made for equality in so many important ways, women are still severely underrepresented in leadership positions, both in the public and private sectors. It is about time that organizations embrace gender diversity because it's the right thing to do. Some sectors and industries are waking up to the reality that women in leadership not only bring important 
benefits, but that they are an absolutely invaluable and irreplaceable resource in the office, in the boardroom, in parliament, in the justice system, you name it. Women bring skills, different perspectives, and structural and cultural differences to drive effective solutions. So it is the right thing to do. Women should be given opportunities because they deserve to be given opportunities. Women are good leaders. They should be given opportunities to lead. How do you think we can create more of those opportunities and really open up those spaces so that we do indeed benefit women, not just today, but also into the future? You know, globally, women's advancements to leadership and political position is just reminiscent of an obstacle course with a number of challenges at almost every step of the way. There is always an excuse. No, we can't have a woman in this position. No, uh, you know, there are always excuses. Even before women enter the field of diplomacy, of politics, of business, the playing field has been uneven. It has been riddled with barriers to entry. There are particular forms of ingrained masculinity. Uh, there are scripts, there are practices that refuse to go away. I think to answer your question, we need to change perceptions, the stereotypes. There is still the mindset of think leader, think me. For instance, in my field, often as soon as a woman becomes a diplomat, her leadership style and performance is measured through the gender stereotyping. This leaves the female diplomats vulnerable to unfair criticism, and it leads to them always trying to do more to improve themselves. It's not surprising that as women, we are often left with the feeling of being trapped in a double bind, a sense that whatever you do as a woman, you can do no right. Besides diplomacy and politics, look at other fields like mining, like transport, agriculture. It has been difficult for women to enter in these areas because, like I indicated before, for a very long time, they have been associated with power, with wars, with masculinity, all of which have been perceived as the role preserved for men. Consequently, women often find themselves in untenable positions of having to perform their duties, knowing that they are assessed against these masculine standards. Women then often find themselves in a situation, like I said before, the double bind dilemma. This is explained as a psychological impasse created when contradictory demands are made of an individual so that no matter which directive is followed, the response will be construed as incorrect. It's a situation in which a person must choose between equally unsatisfactory alternatives, a punishing and inescapable dilemma for women. Look, I also think we need to build on confidence. As women, I must say, we always doubt ourselves, our capabilities, we undersell ourselves. For instance, if there is a position 
um, that is advertised. And you think you do not qualify because you do not have a certificate in one. You won't even try. You won't apply. Whereas men, they would not even think twice about it. They would apply regardless of whether they qualify or they don't qualify. So we do not have the confidence in ourselves because unfortunately society has made us to doubt ourselves. You're raising these points where there is certainly still gender stereotyping, that women and men are treated differently, that the expectations of women are often triple-fold to their male counterparts because they have to, first, it's not just about attending to the position, but it's overcoming, and this has been a theme of our conversation today, overcoming perceptions of society on what their accomplishments and achievements are, and then being able to fulfill their position with the right types of qualifications and competencies. Yeah, that's true. Hi, Commissioner, given all of these types of challenges that you've experienced in your life, that you've observed, what would be your advice to women who find themselves torn between traditional and cultural expectations of them as as women, as wives, as mothers, and their own personal needs, like gaining an education or building a professional career? We still have a long way to go. The field is uneven. There are some cultural practices which still promote women as inferior in some cultures. From day one, women, girls, we face political and cultural and societal environments which inhibit our development. We find that we are not well equipped when we sometimes join the workplace. We face challenges such as the lack of appropriate training and financing. There are issues of violence. There are issues of discrimination, even with the media coverage. I remember, I think, Dr. Ngozi from Nigeria, when the media gave coverage, they were talking about a grandmother. They were not talking about her her qualifications. They were not talking about her experience. None of those things were important, but they were talking about a grandmother. I remember, again, uh, when we talk about these cultural issues, in one of the seminars I had organized for Women Head of Missions in Ottawa, one of my colleagues from one of the African countries, narrated a sad story about how, as a girl child, she had to fetch water every morning for her brothers and other family members for them to bath in preparation for school. How she had to make sure that she prepared breakfast for her siblings. She said she would arrive late at school because this was the culture that a girl child must be groomed to be able to take care of her future husband and family. You see, cultural practices then find their way to the boardroom. For instance, you still find males expecting their female colleagues to make tea for them during or before meetings. Some female board members may not be aware that this is not right because this is how they were raised. So you will still find males who do not want to report to younger female bosses. And if they do, they will do everything in their power to undermine their authority. 
In the workplace, women are being held to a higher standard than their male counterparts. Ambition in men is considered a sign of strength, but when it comes to a woman, women cannot rely on their ambition being perceived as a positive attribute. It has been observed again that as Africa's record of women in parliament improves, it has been accompanied by rising cases of women's rights abuse, as male bosses would sometimes demand certain favors in exchange for promotions, salary increases, etc. So maybe to answer then the second part of your question, what should we do? What should women do who find themselves caught or torn between traditional expectations? I can say, women, you were born for a reason and you are in this position because you are capable. Don't ever second doubt yourself. The position you are in is not about a beard, but it's about your qualifications, it's about your experience, it's about your capabilities. So if you feel you have to up the stake by improving, for instance, your knowledge, do it. Study further. Study further. You do not want to be used as a token that we have a woman in our boardroom. Read. Surround yourself with people who are knowledgeable. So that's the advice that I can give. That's a great piece of, of practical advice and also all of the context that you provided in that of the realities that women still have to contend with. Hi, Commissioner, we're coming towards the end of our show. Uh, unfortunately, time passes so quickly. I wanted to ask you about your personal journey and factors for success so, for instance, some of the people that we've had on our show have spoken about discipline, focus, faith, and values. In your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? Perhaps to answer your question, I just need to give you a little bit of background uh, about my life. As a Black girl born during the apartheid era in South Africa, I realized that as unique as every person is, my story is a mere microcosm of apartheid South Africa. My father abandoned my mother and I when I was three days old, I am told. My mother had no option but to leave me with relatives while she sold a live food. As a child, I remember being moved from one relative to another. I was grateful that I had roof over my head, but sadly, my mother being away there was little in the way of affection or welcoming in some of these houses. I had one thing to look forward to though. Once a month, my mother would come visit. That is, if she managed to save enough to do so. She was my rock during those, those days. She still is my rock today. A selfless, dedicated woman who made incredible sacrifices to provide for me. My mother stressed the importance of education. So understanding my background and circumstances, I focused on education with the sole determination of giving my mother a stable place to call home. Now, as I grew up as a black woman in apartheid South Africa still, we faced oppression from three areas, our race, 
our gender, and our class. The playing fields in society were therefore not equal. When I experienced discrimination in the, in the workplace, finding myself working twice as much and sometimes not being heard, I again focused on my goals, constantly studying to improve my knowledge on different matters. You know, today I am standing on the shoulders of giants like uh, Winnie Madigisela Mandela, Albertina Sisulu, Rahima Musa, and so many more. People who fought not only white domination, but also sexism. They advocated women's rights and denounced patriarchy. They were focused. So you are right. It's very important to focus and to know where you want to go and what you, have, what you want to achieve. I've also been fortunate, I must say, to work under strong women like the UN Director of Women, uh, Madam Pumzilem Lambunguga, while at the Department of Minerals and Energy. I've also worked with Advocate Pensi Tlakula while at the IEC, just to name a few. I am where I am today because of my mother and because of the unified efforts by South African women who took to the street in protest for recognition. So determination is very, very important. Knowing where you want to go, it's very, have goals, focus, have be driven and have very important and uh, strategic people that you can go to for mentorship, for advice. Thank you for sharing some of your life journey and, and history. I would imagine that your mum must be incredibly proud of what you've managed to achieve and accomplish. Yes, I, I hope she is. <laughs> I hope she is. Hi, Commissioner, as we close out our conversation today, please could you use this platform to share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to girls and women in the African continent that are listening to the show? Um, I, I think patience, patience, good work ethics are very important. And I want to advise women that you must remember that where you are today, someone may have lost a life. Someone may have lost a job. Someone may have made a lot of sacrifices for you to be where you are today. You should not forget when suddenly doors open for you that there are people who are looking to you to make sure that you also open doors for them. When you are sitting on the table, make sure you bring another chair so that you bring another woman to sit amongst the people in that table. Women are waiting. They are just waiting for you to open spaces. Be humble. Work diligently because you are not guaranteed a second chance. Do not look down upon the people who are still trying to make it to where you are. Have personal drive. Seize opportunities presented to you. <laughs>
Thank you for that great message. It was very inspiring, motivational. And I also take from it that in that responsibility of opening doors, women also have their duty to walk through those doors that have been opened for them. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I hope uh, the interview was useful. And I hope uh, in the near future, uh, we will definitely see a difference in uh, women uh, taking their space as they should. And to borrow your words again from our conversation, we are standing on the shoulders of the giants who have walked before us. Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to South Africa's High Commissioner to Canada, Sibongiseni Glamini Mutambo.